And welcome to another edition of Odyssey House Journals. I'm Trip Mitchell, and I get to say hi every week and then turn it over to Randall Carlisle. Hello. Um, Our yeah. lead story tonight on ABC4. Oh, I'm not a news guy anymore, am I? Y you are not, but yes. uh, you, you know what I'm amazed is that Randall is so good on this show, and you write everything out on a teleprompter. Well, that's all I've learned to be able to do. I can't even think for myself without having a teleprompter there. And I'm reading, wait, you got to keep the teleprompter rolling or I've got to stop talking. Have you ever worked at a, no, you never have. At a, there are teleprompters. So essentially what we're talking about is a teleprompter is a device that allows people to see the script, news people, to see the script and to and read. looking right into the camera while you're reading. It's reflected up. Exactly. Uh, and we have one in our other studio. But most news people, if the teleprompter stops, you're in trouble. Now, you do have a script in front of you. Yes, you do. But have you had teleprompter fails? Well, the first station I worked at was in Colorado Springs, and it was and it was a small staff, and you had to you had to run it yourself with a foot pedal. That's what I was going to ask and, you. And, yeah, and it was like, uh, and so and back then it wasn't computerized, so you had sheets of paper that you would tape together, going down a, a belt that rolled underneath a camera that then projected it up in front of the camera that people were watching you on. And you control the speed with like a pedal, like the speed of your car. And if the papers would all of a sudden get stuck in the <laughs> middle of a segment, you didn't have the teleprompter anymore, and you couldn't. You had to wait for a commercial break to go out and and, and fix the and, teleprompter and fix it. So it was, and, and and that was my first job in TV. And and I and I found my I'd look at a videotape of a newscast, and I was sitting there doing this <laughs> because I was controlling the pedal. You know, I was saying. People must have thought the guy is weird, you know, he's going like this all the time. Yeah, teleprompters are the greatest tool in the world, or they can be your least. Exactly. And when they go bad, and you, what you're supposed to do is have your script, and as you go to the next page on your so teleprompter, you know, yeah. where you are. But none of us ever did. Yeah, there you go. And hey, I've got to tell you something. I, this You'll find this interesting. Uh, I, I put out this little press release, and we got some coverage a while back from Odyssey House, and, and this is this is really interesting because I had I had our admission director come up one day and say, "There's something weird going on here because we're getting so many admissions of people listing alcohol as their main problem. Normally, it's it's a small portion of the people we admit, and normally it's heroin or some kind of opioid or meth." And, and and the release that I put out is we've seen a 78% increase in the number of clients coming in claiming alcohol is their big problem uh, from, I just looked up some figures from May 1st of this year through June 15th, uh, nearly half of all our clients, 49% said alcohol was the main reason they were coming in for treatment. Same period last year, it was only 28%. Do you think it's Corona nineteen? I, you know, I do. I, I, you know, it's the thing I find weird about it, and you, as you well know, it's all of us being in recovery is the one thing that they tell us not to do, and that the big book talks about, it, and therapists talk about is don't isolate. Okay, and so what are we being told through this whole pandemic? Isolate, you know, and so you got a lot of people sitting at home, uh, and alcohol is still considered an essential industry in, in Utah, so the DABC stores have been open. You're sitting there alone, maybe you don't have a job, maybe you're able to work from home, 
where nobody could smell your breath or anything else. And, and, and for an alcoholic, that's a tempting combination. And you had the best line, which I've quoted, and I've actually not given you credit for it ever. What's, what's that? When you moved to Utah to think that there would be a time when the liquor stores are open and the LDS churches, churches are, closed. are closed. Yeah, yeah. That, that was just unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. So. so that is really intriguing. And in the last show, we talked. We had Travis Whitaker on from Maple Mountain. That was a great show. Mm -hmm. We talked a little bit about did AA or recovery programs let people down by not being open during the pandemic? And there's some people argue that even though there was a high risk of transmission of COVID-19, that people would have been better served. I don't think that's the case, but it's open to debate. And well, I mean, AA meetings have been put on Zoom, which I, I don't like, but, but it's better than nothing. Uh, but, you know, a lot of treatment centers have kept, with a lot of stringent requirements, kept in Odyssey House is one that we've kept our residential facilities open. Uh, yeah. but. You know, so we still have several hundred people living in our residential facilities, but they can't have visitors. They have to do Zoom visits with their relatives. So uh, yeah, there's a price to pay. And, and 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 all the therapists who work at like one house just stay at that house. A lot of times we'd have a therapist who would work at this house, then this house, and this house on different days, and they all everybody stays at one house. And I mean, it's we just changed the way we do business. Yeah, it is a, a scary time. Well, our guest today, let, oh, go ahead, you have some Well, no, our guest, I mean, how many times have you seen TV programs or podcasts or whatever where you keep talking about this mythical person behind the camera? And, and we are always talking about this guy named Lee. He's our Gelman. Yes. Does he exist? I mean, is he real? And is he in recovery? There you go. Well, Lee Spencer, come on down. All right. Hey, Here he is, the guy who's supposed to be behind the camera. So what he did was hit record, and, and it's still going. <laughs> Coming over here. Yeah, I hope so. So Lee, Lee and I met at the Noon Alano Club meeting a couple of years ago. We did. And you had somehow found out that I was in this crazy business. Yeah, I, I listen, and you're a talker. I, he does that a lot. <laughs> he does that I, well, when I, what you're up to. when I share, I don't really want to tell, I want people to laugh. Right. That's kind of my gig at, at recovery. And, and, you know, because there are a lot of people who, in AA meetings, who are there to bore people. Right. And, so. I try and, to and that frequently that happens. And my home group in Vegas, we used to time people and have bets going around because <laughs> there's certain people who do that. But, Lee, you're one of those people who's very reflective. And I didn't really realize your story in AA until I went to a speaker's meeting. Mm -hmm. And you talked about how you got into recovery coming from a Mormon background, and you're still a member of the church. So. Right, right. Card carrying Mormon. Yeah, and that is... Can I see your card? <laughs> sure. <laughs> you, is there a special card? Well, yeah, getting the temple. It's temple recommended, yeah. Okay, so you, you got yeah, one? No, I mean, so when I use that, it's kind of a tongue-in-cheek statement, but it is a card. Yeah. And so I'm, when I say I'm card carrying Mormon, that, that, that actually means yeah. something. I mean, not in the Mormon community, but... Yes. It's kind of... Because one would perceive that alcoholism is not a big part of the Mormon experience... But as our guest last week explained, that drugs have become a big part of the right. Mormon experience. So, and first of all, we want to thank you for working on this show. This is all a volunteer effort by Randall and myself, and our part of the show is this much. You do the hard work. Yes, he does. <laughs> well, it's an enjoyable experience. Number one, I believe in the concept. The subject matter of what we're talking about is very important to me. And... Uh, so I believe in that. But I like telling stories. I mean, that, when I heard you talk about what you were doing in, in that uh, 
to that nooner meeting in Lionel Club, uh, I didn't hear that from when you pitched. I heard it from when you're talking to all your friends when you come in there. It didn't take me long to figure out that, that you're in TV business, you, you, you did this kind of stuff. And I know from experience that editing, taking a camera out and capturing something, that's the easy part. But, but make it into a usable product afterwards, that's the hard part. So that's why I suggested, well, if you have any, any need for editing, so one thing led to another, and then, uh, and then you met Randall. And so all of a sudden we've got an opportunity to actually, actually work together, and that, that was quite a, quite a and, and one of the cool experiences, Randall was nice enough to invite us down, and so it was probably two years ago. Yeah, well, we started. Yeah, and yeah. went down and visited Milano Club and well, found visited Odyssey Odyssey House. House excuse me, <laughs> <laughs> it was one of the two. Uh, oh, they all looked the same. Yeah, all looked the same. Yeah, but just we a had, bunch of drugs. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. we had a chance to visit and go through all these campuses, yeah, and being associated with Odyssey House has been a pleasure oh, because sure. literally, yeah. you know, eight hundred to a thousand people in yeah. treatment a day. Yeah, a day yeah. is an amazing story. And well, it's interesting listening to Travis make the comment that uh, alcoholism, drug abuse, and drug addiction is not a respecter of persons. And I think that's the reason why I, I enjoy being around the recovery world is because you're around all kinds of people. We all suffer from similar problems. It's just our drug of choice is what's, what makes it yeah. different. Yeah. But uh, it's, it's a wonderful place to be around people like that. So tell us your story. But first of all, oh. ready for a drum roll. How many years <laughs> have you, do you have sobriety? Okay, so I, I stopped drinking on November 22nd, 1975. Okay, you do the math. And so that's... Uh, 44? 44 years, yeah, so I'll, I'll be... You know, math. I didn't do any math. He told me ahead of time, so... <laughs> well, and the, the funny part of working with Lee is one of the other projects we do is a very R-rated show, which has since blown up because the hosts aren't talking to each other, but... And I said to Lee, I go, when I seen you at a speaker's meeting and found out you're LDS, I go, does covering this type of show offend you? And you had a great line, you said. <laughs> well, what you experience as a combat marine in Vietnam makes everything up pale by comparison. <laughs> yeah. I believe so yeah, that. I could pretty much take anything. Were you doing drugs and alcohol while you were in Vietnam? Not drugs. I've never taken drugs. I smoked one joint in my life. That's as deep as... And I've that was this morning before you know, <laughs> I got to do this. <laughs> well, <laughs> No, but uh, that's why it's so loose on the show. Today. Yeah. Well, as close as shaky I, camp. It's funny. As close as I ever came, I was on a on a patrol one day, and a buddy of mine, he was marijuana user all the time, and uh, I had a fifth of Jim Beam in me. By the time I said, "Man, I'm ready to do that marijuana," and he was smart enough to say, "No, you're not. You're not going to do it." And uh, and that's I, I probably would have gotten into it if he if he hadn't stopped me. Was it tough to find a fifth of Jim Beam? No. Any time you're around. When we'd go out on patrol, more often than not, we'd run across army people out there too. And any time we came across an army, they always had Jim Beam. I don't know what it was with a PX or supply suit, whatever, but they always had Jim Beam. So, Marines are tougher than army people. Well, they're different. It's just a different experience. But uh, that's why I always look forward to crossing paths with army. With army. The <laughs> U.S. Army, sponsored yeah. by Jim Beam. They, they, they always had a fifth of Jim Beam somewhere. Did you actually drink while you were on doing in combat? Oh, yeah, all the time. Yeah, <laughs> if you could get it, you drank it. Wow. D you know, I've, I've, this is insane, but I've had this thought that if I knew that my plane was going to crash <laughs> and that things were going bad, would I want to drink as much mini bottles as possible? Makes you wonder. Or be sober to try to get out that door? Yeah, we were rationing two beers a day, and they happened to be warm beers at the time. And I knew that I had a problem with, with alcoholism or that... You know that 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 gnawing need to have to have some. I mean, that, if you've never experienced that, it's a tough thing. 
But uh, I was going to save my beers until the next day so I could build them up and have four beers. That, doesn't that make sense? <laughs> Typical alcoholic thinking. <laughs> yeah. Two well, aren't going to do it. For, that's so right. Four. Once I made that decision, it took me about an hour and a half before I could not not drink those beers. And Warm that, yeah, Budweiser. It didn't matter. But see, I was only like 20 years old. And at the time, I, I thought, I had that little gnawing thought that, you know, there's something wrong. If you can't stop, if you can't put away that, there's something wrong. And that, that's the first inkling that I had a problem with alcohol. But in, in Vietnam, I would think that everything else would be in, you know, you've got a chance to lose your life limbs the very next day. The yeah, but you don't think about that stuff in the combat zone. I mean, it's always there. It's like a pilot. If you think of a commercial pilot, you know, they don't give them parachutes when they get on these commercial planes. <laughs> and, uh, and so you know if there's a problem on board, you're going down with the plane one way or another. And it's just a mindset that you get. And that's the same way when you're in a combat situation. You just... It's just there. You're not thinking about it. You're not, not going to be, well, what, i got to be smart so I don't. You don't think about that. It's just, you just do your daily stuff and you just go through it. So, so being a young Mormon kid, how did you get involved with alcohol? Well, now that's an interesting thing because my dad, he grew up in the church kind of like I did. And it's interesting hearing other people on these shows talk about the, the genetic, the DNA. Is it in your DNA? Is it inherited? And my, my grandfather who I never met, what I've learned about him is had a similar kind of life. He grew up in the church, but he didn't really go to church. They called him Jack Mormons. I haven't right. heard that expression for a long time, but that's what it is, it's the way my dad was. And so there was always alcohol in our house. And so I remember sneaking upstairs. My, my room was in the basement of our house, and we lived in Syracuse at the time. It's up by Ogden. And I remember on Friday nights, they, my parents would have these parties. They'd have friends over there. And I remember sneaking up there as a 10-year-old thinking, oh, I'm going to have it. I mean, didn't it look great when you see people drinking? I mean, don't, to see the commercials, I mean, they yeah, they're all time. having fun. Oh, I want to do yeah. that. Well, as a 10-year-old, I wanted to embrace that world. And, of course, you're not. And so uh, I sneaked up to this one time, and I had, saw these, these brightly colored bottles on a counter. Right. Wow. And I seen what I'm thinking of is soda pop. And so I poured out this thing, and, and I see, remember seeing a, a turkey on, on the label. There was a turkey, so I thought, this is going to be great. And I could not believe how awful it tasted. <laughs> but that was my first taste of alcohol. And for some reason, and this addresses the alcoholic mind, I couldn't do it again fast enough. Really? Oh, yeah. Even at the age of 10? Oh, even, yeah. I mean, I hurried and got downstairs, and that was the only one, one gulp, and that was it. And I just remember how awful it tasted. But the next Friday, they, they were up there, I was sneaking up that room. And it wasn't long before we were sneaking it. I remember as a 12-year-old, we went on a scout trip up to Hebken Lake in Montana. And I had a bottle of Jim or a Virginia Dare wine that I, my buddy had stolen from his, his granddad when went on a scout trip. And we had a good time with that. But yeah, so I, I've been around alcohol all my life. Wow. Yeah, it, it's funny how we all have the stories. And Randall, did you start at an early age? Do you yeah, know? yeah, I started, I think, 13. 13. And I, and I liked, I, I remember, and of course, alcoholism runs in my family too, but and I remember how it made, I, I, I used to feel real insecure around women or in social settings, girls at that time, uh, in social settings. And I remember how it made me feel just emboldened and just powerful sure. and cool. And, <laughs> and I, I, I liked that feeling. And, and so I started drinking at 13, anytime I could sneak some from my parents or somebody else's Did parents. you fill the bottle back up with water? <laughs> That's, that, yes. 
And but yeah, that's problematic. It's not if it's not with vodka or gin. Yeah. But with whiskey, it is because it starts getting lighter in color. You know. Well, then the funny one. One of our friends' daughters was doing the same thing, but they put the water into the vodka and then put the vodka back in the freezer. And boom. Yeah. So it's funny how we have these universal things, but it. As you get into treatment, you, you think about it, the taste, whoever designs this whole planet, the first taste of alcohol is not It's great. terrible. No, it's awful. Yeah. It's yeah. a learned experience. There's no doubt about it. I've always, my whole life, I've been, while I was drinking, I was looking for that drink that tasted good. I never found it. Never found it. Oh, I did. <laughs> what did you find? Oh, I, once you develop a taste for it, the, a beer is... And see, I think uh, beer tasted terrible to yeah. me when I was a kid, but I had to. But I forced myself and went, <laughs> Somehow went through it. it. Yeah. And the yeah. only drinks that ever, ever tasted good were what we call sissy drinks, right. like you know, slow uh, gins and stuff. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, and and the funny thing is, one of my favorite podcasts is a podcast called Spit and Chicklets, oh, right. and it's a huge financial juggernaut, and it's a hockey podcast, and it's a euphemism for when you have a puck hitting you in the face, you spit sure. your teeth out. But they have gotten behind a girl's drink called the Pink Whitney, mm -hmm. which is vodka and pink lemonade. And uh, New Amsterdam Vodka, which is owned by Gallo, developed this just for the show, and it's the biggest runaway hit in the liquor industry. Really? In all of North America. Because it tastes good. Yeah, it's well, kind of a novelty. Yeah, yeah it's a sugary vodka sure. drink. So it shows that people don't so like it. So here we are on a yeah. show about recovery, talking, talking about, about drinks that taste good. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's an interesting thing when you talk about this LDS community here. I remember going in grade school, seeing these health films, you know, how they show you, you know, to avoid this, do that. And I remember seeing a health film as to how to avoid heroin. I'd never heard of heroin. <laughs> and I thought at the time, how in the world are you talking about heroin in Utah? That makes no sense. But what I have since learned is that heroin was, was thriving at that time. I mean, alcoholism and drug abuse has been around in Utah for years. It's not some recent phenomenon. And that, that's what really is the, is the interesting and part about this place. You know, we were talking about it on last week's guest with Travis, how we don't know the numbers in recovery in Utah. And Randall, you would love to know that number. Yeah. But this show is probably the number one non-KSL crime show right. yeah. in the whole area. We've had 12,000 downloads in a week. And so the recovery community is bigger than anyone in oh, yeah. even guesses. I can guarantee you everybody is touched by alcoholism and drug abuse. It's, it, I mean, whether it's not you, your family, and uh, a, a neighbor, a church a, member, or right, a distant relative, right. uh, somebody. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, my wife right now is going through a situation where she has trouble sleeping, and so she's using Ambien. And and she, you know, she's not she's not had a drink in her life. When I talk about 44 years, she said, I got 65 years. <laughs> so so length of time is not. But but she's dealing with the same thing where you're putting a synthetic substance in your body to fix something. And, and you get addicted to it. It's you know because your body adjusts to this stuff. Right. It's an interesting world we live in. But yeah. everybody it touches their all lives. So we're going to take a short break. When we come back, Lee, we're going to start you at the beginning. All right. And uh, see how you've been managed to <laughs> associate with people like Randall and still stay sober. <laughs> that's right. right. That right. that's the hard part. That's we'll be right back. And welcome back to Odyssey House Journal's Trip Mitchell and Randall Carlisle. Lee Spencer, our guest, who is the producer of this show, and we were talking about Lee's experience growing up Mormon and sneaking upstairs to your Jack Mormon father <laughs> and raiding the liquor cabinets with both Randall and I did. How did it 
get out of control? Well, I've always done things early for at my age. I was always sneaking alcohol. My friends were not. So when they started getting into it in high school, I'd already had four or five years at it. <laughs> a veteran drinker. I, I, I was a veteran drinker. I mean, I, I found out my limits. Even though I drank everything I could get my hands on, I, I knew that, that there was a problem, at least I suspected. But I went to the Marine Corps when I was 18, and that just gave me a license to drink. And so I went back to North Carolina where the drinking age was, was lower, and so you could go to the, the, the enlisted men's club and drink all you wanted, and that seemed to give me a reason for doing it. And so when you add that to then going to Vietnam and going through that experience and then coming back from Vietnam and having the world not exactly being what I expected to be coming back, that, that kind of threw me into a, a part where I like to drink. It made me feel good. And so for... So coming, just isolating on that, when a lot of amazing people came back from Vietnam, they not only were not lionized like they right. should be, they're actually being criticized. Yeah, it hadn't gotten that bad. Cause I came back from Nam in '68, uh, in November '68, and so it hadn't gotten quite that bad by then. But by the '70s, I mean, it was going full blown. I mean, I I wouldn't, I'd scared death telling anybody I'd been to Vietnam. You a baby killer? I yeah. hadn't really thought about it from that perspective, you know. But, uh, but yeah. So so anyway, so I uh, so from the time that I went in the Marine Corps when I was 18 until I was 28. I mean, I drank as much as I could possibly get my hands on, and uh, by the time I was 28, I mean, I, my life had gone downhill enough to where I realized that I had a problem just adjusting to life, and so I was always looking for that that perfect drink, and I was I remember seeing in a magazine this commercial for uh, Hennessy cognac, and I'd heard in movies how that you know they're talking, oh, give me a cognac. It's a very sophisticated yeah, thing it was, to do. It was this thing yes. I thought, whoa, and I, I thought, well, hey, let's try that. So I went down to the liquor store and bought a bottle of Hennessy. And I remember it was a Friday night, and I just drank it and got sick. You know, I was awful. The whole bottle. Yeah, the yeah whole it's bottle. very sugary, isn't it? No, it's not. I mean, it, it tastes just like bourbon to me. Yeah, I mean, it it's pretty yucky, though. Yeah. I had to shove the first drink down, but after that, it was all right. But <laughs> yeah, I did not like the taste, is my point. But it was such an awful thing after that that, that uh, I thought, you know, there's a problem. And coincidentally, my neighbor happened to be the uh, clerk for the, for the LDS Church ward building at the time. I hadn't gone to church for 10 years. I'd been, <laughs> Mother's Day was as close as I ever came to actually going to church. And he happened to find my records and I lived right behind his house where, where he was. And so I remember it was a Saturday morning. I was in, in talking with my uh, landlady in her patio. And I still remember this little guy coming into the patio with his paper. He said, hey, is your name Lee Spencer? And I said, yeah. I'm not sure what it's all about. And he said, well, are you a Mormon? And I thought, yeah, I am. And he says, well, why don't you go to church? <laughs> That's all he said. And I said, well, I don't have a good reason. And because of my experience at night with that bottle of Hennessy and him saying, well, why don't you come to church? I started going back to church. And it's interesting because I, ne I haven't never gone through a recovery program, but that was really my recovery program was going back to church. So Next one year. bottle of Hennessy turned you around? Well, it was, that was the, yeah. the culmination. Of yeah, it was, it was many. But, uh, but it was just going back to church and embracing a life where I was actually accepted and people were nice to me and stuff. And it, it was just an interesting experience how that, that was enough to keep me on the straight and narrow for all this time. Well, it's kind, of, it's kind of interesting because we've talked on past shows about the psychological or genetic or, you know, experiences mm -hmm. that do that. So in your case, the alcohol, not sounding like an armchair psychiatrist here, but it was having good experiences 
around you, mm -hmm. people accepting you, that's right. eliminated the need for... That's right. It gave, gave me a purpose. And I've uh, been in recovery now and gone to enough 12-step meetings and seen how, how recovery works. And watching these programs, watching people tell their stories is a, quite an education being behind that camera. But I realized that, that having a purpose and having a support group for, for whatever reason is what we all need. It's what the human being needs. Right. We need to feel like we're, we're at peace. And uh, uh, the last 44 years, I haven't always felt that way. But during those <laughs> critical years of getting started, I, I did. And, and that was really critical. But the interesting thing about it is that even though I wasn't drinking, after about four years of not drinking, that's when the, the dry drunk world was starting to happen for me. I mean, I was, I was crazy. I, I gained 100 pounds. And, uh, and I was just having trouble just, just feeling good about myself. And so I got into the 12-step world by really going to Overeaters Anonymous, who embraced the, the really? Alcoholics Anonymous 12 Steps. And that's how I really learned about, about the 12-step world. And there weren't that many uh, Overeaters Anonymous meetings, OA meetings, so I went to a lot of AA meetings. And so that's when I realized that you know, an addictive mind is an addictive mind no matter what your drug of choice is. And that's really what I've done this past... Uh, <clears throat> about 35 years really is dealing with with the 12 steps from for how to deal with with me in my life and it's interesting how it's like refer to the peeling of an onion you know how you take one layer off and then you discover another issue and you peel that layer and that's what it's been like for me because the we, you hear about veterans coming back from combat zone and having uh, trauma and stuff like that I, I never really realized that that was going on in my life but after about 10 years of being back I was in uh, Denver, Colorado at the uh, Metro College. I was going to college there at the time. And I went into one of the little uh, workshops there. And there was a guy over on the side of the bench there in a room that was sand in a block of wood. Looked like Chewbacca, big old beard, yeah. and bigger than mine. And I just noticed him <clears throat> out of my corner of my eye as I went into this room. And, uh, and all of a sudden I said, hey, is your name Spencer? I go, what? Because nobody knew me there. Right. I looked over and there was this guy looking at me and he says, your name's Spencer, isn't it? And I said, yeah. And he said, I'm Peterman. And, and I pulled him out of a minefield in 67. No kidding. Yeah, yeah after he stepped on mine. Yeah, we were out there. So I was a combat engineer and we'd put this minefield in. And we'd come in there, so I, I think it was on Christmas Day. And, uh, and he was right in front of me and he happened to step on an anti-personnel mine. Really hurt his foot. But I remember carrying him out and that's the last I'd seen him until that day. Wow. And it was interesting because we chatted for a little bit, but I couldn't get out of there fast enough. And I didn't realize at the time how all of these memories and, and things that you go through in combat had all been suppressed. And, and luckily, I was going through 12-step world, you know, in this 12-step meeting. And so I shared this here, and people gathered around me and patted me on the back. You'll be all right. But it took about three days for me to get past that experience. Wow. And that's when it all kind of came flitting back. But, uh, so the Vietnam experience was... You know, and painful for everyone. I can't imagine that it wasn't. I wonder how previous wars have affected, you know, World War II, where one out of every three men fought in the war, and I wonder how that's affected our culture and alcohol and drugs and that sort of thing. Well, I think it's phenomenal. And with Netflix and the digital age that we're in now, where so much information is available, all of the stuff that you're referring to has come up. I mean, people experience the same things. I mean, combat is combat. You know, sure. If you're in a situation like that, it's you can't really describe that. You have to experience to actually know what it's like, but what, you know, the actual ways things work. It's not the romanticized that I grew up with, you know, watching sure. the, the, the war movies, movies, oh, war yeah. movies and, 
and stuff. It's not that at all. And so now, nowadays, more information referring to the world that you brought up is coming up because it, it's all bad. I mean, as you think about the people who went through World War One, I, I think what they had to go yeah, through yeah. compared to what I went through is, you know, I went through some pretty light, light stuff compared to what, what's possible. My dad went through World War Two. And it's my sense that, and most of the World War II veterans are dead or dying right mm -hmm. now because of their age. And, and he never talked about his experiences until he was dying of cancer and was high on, uh, on, on morphine or whatever. And he for pain. And then he started talking about some stuff. But it was, I, it, when they came back, first of all, they were considered heroes, you know, and they parades for them in the street and everything. Uh, and and I, I don't think they talked about a lot of the, the things they were dealing with. And the one he told me that struck me, and, and I, I could see how this would screw you up for life, is he was in the South Pacific. He was a Marine, and they were the first ones going ashore on these little islands. Which and they didn't horrific. know whether there'd be Japanese yeah. soldiers there or not. And they came across, like, I think he told me there were like 30 Japanese soldiers on this island. And Dad was only 18 or 19. Uh, and they were all so weak uh, because they 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 got lost or whatever, and they didn't have they didn't have water, they didn't have food, and they were just all like lying around. And according to the code of war, they should have been taken in as prisoners. And his uh, sergeant or whoever was in charge told him to kill them all. And so they just slaughtered like twenty or thirty Japanese soldiers. Mm -hmm. And at, at the age of eighteen or nineteen, you know, but he never talked about that until he was high on fentanyl. At the end of his life, and and so obviously it was in his mind the whole time. Sure, you know. Yeah, a day doesn't go by but what you think of it. It's, it, I mean, it's not a haunting experience, but you, it just passes through your mind, and you see, see things that, that trigger things, and you say, "Oh, he looks like so and so," and, you, and that that's probably what your dad went sure. through. Sure, but yeah, it's it's just one of those things that you have to deal with. And the interesting thing about the topic we're talking about here, as far as alcoholism, drug addiction, and how the human being, we just want to feel better. And the brain is a pleasure-seeking thing. I mean, not, not necessarily from an entertainment standpoint, but it, it just wants to feel good. That's what we do. And so the things that we suffer, whether it's the loss of a child, whether it's war, whether, I mean, any number of things that cause trauma, the body is trying to seek a solution to feel better. Mm. And, uh, and the brain's resilient. It'll, it'll find a way. It's interesting talking about last week's program as he was talking about getting all, all of the drugs and all that kind of stuff. And, one thing I found out about alcoholic, alcoholics is we will get what we want. We know how to get what we want. And it's just convincing you that that's not what you want. You want this. And then if you have a purpose, then for some reason the, the brain shifts gears and works. In, so the Travis Whitaker in last week works at a recovery center. When you got sober, recovery centers were probably not near as prevalent. I didn't even know what a recovery center <laughs> I, I, that, yeah. That thought that Betty I never Ford heard was kind of the first. Betty one that Ford I, was the, yeah, that the first one to get any publicity. That's right. Yeah, there all. must have been others at the well, time. Well, sanitariums, what you think about? Yeah, it, people go to. Well, that's right. You read about that in in the in the big book, book. Sure, right. you know, that yeah. they used to they they throw drunks in a hospital and then sedate them until they've right. gone through the DTs and then send them out again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you're cured. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's an interesting world, isn't it? Do you, as a veteran, do you look? Um, is there any thought of jealousy? I did when you look at how the U.S. has kind of turned around and honor our veterans and try to do, at least through lip service, we try to treat them with all the respect and uh, dignity that they deserve? I think it's great. I, my daughter went, uh, she went in the Army as a, as a young woman. 
she became a medic. It's where she met her husband. She went to uh, uh, Desert Storm, so she was over there as a medic when they did that. And it's interesting when she came back, just observing all the people that she knew and all of the the dependents that set up all these support groups, and she was in con uh, contact with all of them. I was amazed. I thought, Whoa, it'd be yeah. nice to have had yeah. that back then. Yeah. But they, you didn't even think about it that way. I mean. The, the, the turbulent times that we as a world in America in general is going through in the 60s and 70s, I'm amazed that we survived it, to be honest with you. <laughs> and so to think about, well, couldn't have, it wasn't possible. We didn't even know that that was needed. Right. It had, those things just take time to develop. But by the time that uh, George Bush came around and we went over to the Middle East, and by that time we had learned our lesson, well, we don't want to do it quite this way, let's do it that way. And that, in and of itself, will create different problems, and that's what we're suffering through now, as a, as a result of all of those things. That, yeah, know. the the first Gulf War, Herbert Walker Bush, mm -hmm. was yeah, much that, cleaner, and then the sun. Yeah, yeah. it's interesting how. Yeah, and that's one thing that I have learned about human behavior: is you cannot legislate human behavior. We people will do what they're going to do. You can alter it a little bit, but people are going to do it. So when you think up, when you bring up GW talking about doing that, let's do it right this time. I mean, look at what came out of all that. You know, I mean, so we don't know what we're doing half the time. Yeah, and unforeseen problems. <laughs> and right. yeah. You know, it uh, it makes for very interesting debates, and I am at home with the wife that, sure. you know, she supported that fully, and I said, you can't look at George W. as being a successful president because he prosecuted a war we didn't need to have, and every life that's lost, or. To me, what's more tragic is young people at the peak of their lives get inexorably altered, losing an arm, sure. losing, sure. and the value of those people lost is just tragic. Well, it's an interesting paradox because you cannot fight war with people that aren't young. Once you get to a certain age, you understand a few things. You won't yeah. go. You won't do that. So it has to be fought with with young men that don't know any better, and yet that's the cream of the crop. I mean, that's. That's our future that you're, you know, you're playing cards with. You know, that's a chip you throw on the table, and uh, and yet you can't play that game unless you do that. You know, it's ironic as we go to tape today, the third week in June, or almost fourth week. Kim Il Jung is starting to show restraint in North Korea. <laughs> <laughs> so even even the crazy ones realize that war is the least acceptable alternative. Uh, this half hour has flown. That's amazing. Yes. Are, are you going to do a good job editing this show? I'll, I'll do my best. I'll make, I'll make me look better. I always look crazy when I see in the mirror he's, what I look like. <laughs> that's right. He has, so if you think about it, he has total control. Yeah. The, yeah. the editor has total yeah. control over the final product of any tape. That's right. So you could Snapchat Randall and I, and we would look yeah. like crazy people. Yeah, I yeah. make you guys look better. Photoshop me, make me look really good. You can yeah. take certain words out and make us say crazy stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for doing all you do. Well, yeah, it, it's it, my pleasure. And again, you have done 90% of the work on this project, but it's something I'm very proud of. And, That's and good show. what's That's really cool is I meet other people in the recovery community, and they watch it. Sure. And, you know, and again, if we can affect one life. So the important thing is if you've got someone in your life who is having challenges, please reach out, talk to anyone. There are so many wonderful people in the Utah recovery community, but in particular, if you want to call Odyssey House at 801-322-3222. Call and Odyssey House people will get you some information. Again, there are a ton of people and organizations out there to help out and just 
the fact that we have met so many people through the show, yeah. that's the inspiring part. Yes, I agree. People can, you can get off this thing yes. and have an amazing life. Yes, and, and the next time we refer to Lee behind the camera, it's a real person. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> thanks for watching. We'll see you next time. I want to thank, by the way, the other member of our crew, Bill Francis. Thanks for helping us out, getting us on Comcast. For Lee and Randall on Trip, and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. See you later.